0: If all you care about is whether your kid can get into Stanford and therefore what you care about is not necessarily what your child learns, but whether your child gets all A's, then you maybe don't want the teacher to be too demanding. You want the teacher to to teach your child enough, but not so much that your child doesn't get perfect grades. So I think this whole thing turns into this terrible cycle. Adolescence, also
1: known as the Oy years, isn't really a time that most families look forward to. But what if almost everything you thought about those angsty teen years was wrong? What if the rules we laid down as parents, as teachers, and people who supposedly knew better were actually doing more harm than good? Well, it turns out that just might be the case. New research on the adolescent brain seems to be turning everything we thought we knew about the care and handling of young adults on its head. And it's also exposing something else, something that just might be a little bit terrifying for a parent or two adolescence is now twice as long as it used to be, starting at around 10 and continuing to almost 25 years old, which is really important because until it ends, your impulsive hedonistic desires are on overdrive. But the part of your brain that stops you from doing stupid things hasn't really developed enough to keep you safe. So how do you handle that? How do you create a world that lets kids take the risks that they need to, you know, to rock adulthood without destroying their futures and maybe even themselves along the way? And how do you take a part of life that most families look at as a battle to be survived and turn it into something to be exalted and even enjoyed? Well, that's what we're talking about on today's episode. I'm Jonathan Fields. This is Good Life Project. My guest today is Professor Lawrence Steinberg. So he's one of the world's leading experts on adolescence, a distinguished professor of psychology at Temple University. He's the author of more than 350 articles and essays on development during the teenage years and the author and editor of 17 books, including his new one, The Age of Opportunity, Lessons from the New Science of Adolescence. Put another way, when it comes to angsty adolescence, Larry knows his stuff.
0: So much of who we are as adults is kind of set during adolescence. A lot of the ways that we think of ourselves, even if our lives have changed, are really grounded in those memories from adolescence. And one phenomenon that um, I'm really interested in is it's called the reminiscence bump. Um, and so if you ask people to recall memories of things that have happened to them people can recall things more from adolescence than any other point in development it's a pretty well documented phenomenon even though people had thought that maybe it was because of the sorts of things that happened during adolescence you know your your first love and your first job and your first beer and your maybe first time you lived away from home that turns out not to be the explanation because even mundane things are recalled better from adolescents than they are from other times. So what's behind that? I think it's the adolescent brain. I think that the recording device in the adolescent brain um, is set to a higher level of sensitivity. Mm -hmm. And it's part of, it's a reflection of the, I think, the fact that the adolescent brain is so sensitive to the environment and that people are not even deliberately uh, paying close attention to what's going on in in their world then, and, and I think that it, it's a hardwired, it's a hardwired evolutionarily adaptive feature of adolescence because it I mean, it also turns out it's not just personal events. People remember what they read. Hmm. They remember the music that they listened to. They remember the movies that they saw. They even remember the news stories. That they were exposed to during adolescence more than those from other periods of time.
1: At least from the outside looking in and from my memory, you know, there was a pretty deeply emotional time. And from the little research that i 've done on this, you know that, that memories are imprinted more strongly when they 're connected with some sort of deep emotion. But then what you were saying, which is that even the more mundane things we're all unless there 's sort of this umbrella of just a high, a more highly aroused emotional state that just persists, maybe that 's in some way involved
0: well, we know that the the brain systems that are responsible for our experience of emotions are more easily aroused during adolescence than they are at other points in time. So it's not so much that adolescents are moody compared to adults. It's more that they have higher highs and lower lows. And you're absolutely right. There is some research on the neurochemistry of um, laying down memory. And when a memory is accompanied by strong emotions, it tends to be encoded a little more deeply. And because emotions run stronger during adolescence, it may just make everything yeah. You, you know, encoded more permanently. But the, you know, the sensitivity of the brain to experience during adolescence, I think, should make us pay attention more to what kinds of experiences kids are having because they're going to have some lasting impact on them.
1: Yeah. So take me into this because this is really, this starts to really lay the foundation, get to the heart of your work in the
0: recent book. Right. So this is something that neuroscientists call brain plasticity which is the capability of the brain to be affected by experience. Um, and the, the brain is plastic at all ages. Right.
1: Which apparently also some like decade or two ago would have been almost heresy to say that, you know, past the early part.
0: That's you right. Know,
1: it was still malleable.
0: That's right. But if you think about learning... Uh, which we can still do, fortunately, as adults, Um, if you learn something and you retain what you've learned, there has to have been some change in your brain, or else you could never get back that information or knowledge. Um, So the brain remains plastic after adolescence, but it's a different kind of plasticity. So during childhood and adolescence, we might think of the brain as being built, New brain circuits get laid down, and unused ones are eliminated or pruned. Um, there's even a the development of new neurons. After adolescence, those things don't happen. They don't happen. Uh, at least not not on the scale that they do beforehand. So what you what you find is that brain circuits in adulthood can be tweaked, but they can't really be transformed in the way they are beforehand. Um, to me, that makes adolescence very important because it's the last time in development when the brain is really that malleable. Yeah. I mean,
1: it, it's also interesting that I guess there's sort of like the pop psychology of, of neuroscience these days and neuroplasticity has become this big buzzword. And a lot of people are going around saying you can. there's no hardwiring anymore. You know, everything is you can completely rewire your brain. But I guess what you're saying is... You, you, you can do some things, but there's—it's not like this window where there's just a massive opportunity.
0: That's right, and and in in the last several years, scientists have actually discovered some of the brain chemicals that change between adolescence and adulthood that create a different kind of neuroclimate in the brain, and so in 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 adolescence, the climate is one that favors change and transformation in response to environmental input. In adulthood, the climate shifts to one that favors stability. Uh, I, it's it's almost like shifting your portfolio from you know, <laughs> stocks into bonds as you get older because right. you, you, you want more stability. And I think that it makes perfect evolutionary sense. During adolescence, You're still learning how to be an autonomous, independent person. You need to be paying attention to your world, especially your social world. Um, But because plasticity is accompanied by some risk, which we'll talk about, um, at some point, it's not worth it. It's not worth the risk. So once you've accumulated the knowledge that you need, um, you're probably better off closing that window and focusing more on conserving resources rather than expanding them. Um, So plasticity, it it cuts both ways. Um, It's because the brain doesn't know the difference between a good experience and a bad experience when it's happening. And so, so when the brain is plastic, it can be... You know it 's susceptible to to the influence of positive things in the environment, but it 's equally susceptible to the influence of harmful ones and that 's why adolescence is both an opportunity um, but it 's also a time of vulnerability and and we see that in 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 lots of ways
1: so I mean deconstruct the word susceptible to me i mean what 's the um, what actually happens in 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 the brain if there 's a negative experience you're like a deep some sort of trauma or something during this window of time. What is the danger? Like, what, what will this do that creates, um, like, more of a downside than at a later point in life? And I guess the same thing on the upside.
0: Well, on the downside, one of the things that it does is if it's a stressful experience, it causes the release of cortisol. And cortisol in high enough quantities is, is toxic. To the brain, it eats away at myelin, um, and it interferes with the production of healthy brain circuits that allow for the better transmission of electrical impulses in the brain. And of course, that means the better transmission of information. Um, the, the the you know the basic principle is that when you use a a, a brain circuit, the more you use it, the more ingrained it becomes and so if you're learning things and you're repeating them um, then you're going to be able to retain that learning more because it's going to be more deeply ingrained um, and so if you are exposed to positive experiences during adolescence um, that are that are challenging um, not so challenging that they're overwhelming but that are kind of in the zone um, then that will facilitate the development of brain circuits that allow you to cope with those kinds of, of challenges. Um, but if you're having bad experiences during adolescence, um, those brain circuits that regulate things like negative emotions are also going to become more ingrained and more easily activated in, in the future.
1: Hmm. So, which means, um, you have to be careful. Um, But I mean, I guess there are a lot of implications to this, right? You know, one is for the kid. The other is also for the parents um, in understanding how this dynamic unfolds and and what their role is in
0: it. I mean. Yeah. And and I think that, you know, we can talk about this at the level of the brain, but it's just as interesting and helpful to talk about it at the level of psychological functioning. You you know, I mean, I, I think that for a long time, parents... Thought, or may me still think, that adolescence is something, you know, to just endure. Mm. Um, that that's the best you can do, and you know, I think that sometimes when parents of teenagers get together, they sort of swap war stories about, you know, what they've been through and how they've come out of it, maybe, and um, or how lucky they've been that their kid turned out to be such a great kid. Um, but I think what this new view of adolescence holds is, is the promise, I think, of the fact that you can still affect your child for the better during adolescence. It's not something that you should just look at as, some, as a stage to be survived. Um, in fact, I think there's lots of reasons to believe that people can really thrive during adolescence if we stop thinking about it as something just to be endured. Um, I mean, so just imagine how you would behave differently as a parent or as a teacher, um, if you, if all you thought that the best you could accomplish was, was to get through it safely. I mean, you wouldn't invest a lot of, of energy or resources in trying to facilitate the, the young person's positive development and and i think that if you if you look at the messages that we've been giving parents and kids for a long time now i i think it's survival that's 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 the word if you in in preparing for you know this this lecturing that i'm doing now because of the publication of the book um I went and I looked on Amazon at what's out there for parents, and I found you know, no fewer than 12 books that have the word "survivor" or survival yeah. in, in the title. Uh, and then just out of curiosity, I looked to see uh, uh, what, what books uh, for parents of babies I couldn't find a single one that survived. Survive <laughs> right, because you're supposed
1: to be all hopeful and loving. Exactly, God, but it I mean, anybody
0: yeah. that's raised an infant, those first—I mean, I remember as a father, that's those brutal, <laughs> those first three months are really brutal. I yeah, mean, no and survival was exactly what was on my mind. Right. You know, you know, when our our child wasn't sleeping as much as we wished he was yeah. sleeping, or when he, you know, his nap schedule was convenient for him but not so convenient for us, um, but yet we don't talk about infancy that way. You know, they're all cuddly um, and, and teenagers, you know, are difficult and rebellious and challenging and so forth, but that's not really true.
1: Mm. Yeah. I mean, it, it's so, so interesting, but and the, I think the language, the, the, the context and the frame that we bring to the experiences as, as adults, you know, it, it, cr- it creates the container, you know, so, and that, and that container is so important, you know. It's not the container that we create, and the questions we ask, and the the guidance we, get and the lens that we bring to this experience. It's not simply reactive to what's going on with the kid. You know, like, it's part of like the whole process. Like if this can contribute to. It's funny. My last book, at one point in the millions of titles we were thinking about, one of the titles that was thrown out was "Surviving Creation," and and I showed it to a friend of mine who I respect immensely, is tremendous author. And he's like, no way in hell. He said, he said, the moment you label this process that you want people to experience as wondrous, even though it's difficult and there is struggle, the moment you label it surviving, you've lost.
0: I, I, I agree. And there actually is some research that involves parents, and there's other research that involves teachers that shows that how you approach adolescence, what you think of it, what you expect, becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so if you go into adolescence as a parent thinking that it's going to be a difficult time, it's going to be a difficult time because you're going to interact with your child in ways that probably bring out the worst in your child. Um, and the same thing for, for teachers too. I remember once doing an in-service training for middle school teachers in a big city. And uh, I went over some of what we have learning about the adolescent brain, adolescent cognition, and teacher raised her hand and she asked wasn't it true that the adolescent brain is changing so much that it's impossible for them to learn anything? And I thought, wow, wow, from a this, is, this is a teacher. This is what this teacher is thinking when she is up in front of her classroom. Right, so it's like, why bother having her job I, if that's your solution? Right, exactly. But, you know, nobody in the room gasped. Nobody laughed. I mean... It was as if this was sort of a normal way to to approach it, and for a long time, you know, middle schools were an educational wasteland in the in the United States. They've gotten a lot better, um, partly as our understanding of adolescence has um, has shown that it is not only a time when people can learn, but it's a time when they do learn and learn an awful lot.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting, also, you know that. that- I love the conversation because as I said um I'm in I'm in this space like immediately as a parent right now and I'm you know very blessed to have you know my kid in in a school where actually ch- you know she, she's in 8th grade she wakes up in the morning she loves school That's so good right because I when I was in 8th grade that was not me like I don't have that memory it was I couldn't wait to to leave it wasn't disastrous or bad but you know and the, and as we've met some of the teachers there there are ones where it's so clear they push the kids harder than they've ever been pushed. They make them work really hard, but at the same time, they do it with such a container of love and compassion that the kids, you know, you would think that a kid who is already going through an angsty emotional time and a lot of change and social change and all this stuff, somebody comes in and pushes them like that academically at the same time. You think they've just rebel from that. You're like another grown up trying to like, you know, push me down. These kids line up to be in, in the experience of that teacher, which
0: you know initially is kind of counterintuitive, but then once you actually see it, you get it. Right. Um, look, it brings to mind so many different things that I want to say. I mean, the first is that I think for most of us, if we think back to which teachers were our favorite teachers, they weren't the easiest ones they they were the most demanding ones. I mean, they were demanding, but they were also warm and funny and engaging at the same time, uh, which actually are kind of the characteristics of good parents too. Um, but the other thing I want to say is just to point out how lucky your daughter is because her experience is unfortunately very unusual in the United States. Um, we all read about these international achievement comparisons and you know where American students are and so on. Um, and 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 those are important, and I and I do place some faith in their validity. What doesn't get publicized very much is that when those achievement tests are given internationally, they often are accompanied by questionnaires asking students' attitudes about school. Um, so they're not just testing their math skills; they're asking them what they think about school. And one year, they asked kids to rate their school experience on a number of different scales. These were high school students. And American high school students were almost at the top of the world in rating their school as boring. Hmm. They they were third out of all the countries that were surveyed. Wow. Wow. And then I read this statistic, which just stunned me from a different source. Again, thinking about your daughter. Only one out of every six American high school students says that she's ever taken a difficult and challenging class ever. Just one. Um, and I, you know and, and, and finally, not you know, not to bombard you with these numbers, but you know, nearly three quarters of American high school students say that they would learn more if their schools were more demanding. Um, so yes, I agree with you completely. I mean, people this age want to be challenged. They want to be pushed. They want to see how much they can do and how much they can learn. Um and if we don't if we don't push them, if we don't demand much from them, we're not taking advantage of this opportunity. So so what what what's happening
1: that we're not? You know, if you look at all those statistics and you know that, that great data that you just shared, and that's not the common experience. The question is why?
0: Well, I think there are lots of different reasons. Um For one, I think we have gotten so obsessed with testing, um, and that leads to teaching to the test. And when you're teaching to the test, you're, you're, you're hoping that your students can engage in rote memorization of things so that they can pass the test. And I think this movement to try to evaluate teachers on the basis of their students' performance on these tests isn't helping matters. At all, so I think that's that's one. Yeah, and then there's funding
1: attached to that as well. So that's kind right. Deepens the hole there.
0: Um, I think a second is that uh, we we have lost the sense of collaboration that exists that needs to exist between parents and schools. Um, and therefore, I don't think that that many adolescents are getting at home what they need to be engaged. In, in school. And, uh, you know, someone that I was speaking with this morning joked that, um, you know, they really need to rename the U.S. Department of Education as the U.S. Department of Schools. But education isn't just what takes place in the classroom. It's it's the whole life of the child, including what takes place in the family. Um, and I think that parents are not always doing what they need to do to send their kids to school in a way that makes them more easily engaged by teachers in these challenging um, activities. And, and it's a, it becomes a vicious cycle, right? So if all you care about is whether your kid can get into Stanford, and therefore what you care about is not necessarily what your child learns, but whether your child gets all A's, Um, then you maybe don't want the teacher to be too demanding. You want the teacher to to teach your child enough, but not so much that your child doesn't get perfect grades. So I think this whole thing turns into this terrible cycle. Yeah.
2: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot.
1: So why settle? Live up to the all new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. I mean, it's, it's so interesting. Um, the want that I have for my child is that she develops into a wholehearted, compassionate, interested human being <laughs> i this is so you know, i i don't really care a whole lot about grades because you know that's like it's secondary like to me that's it's just not a metric which can determine success under the way i would define it which is not you know sort of like maybe the traditional way but then you've got this conundrum right because you've got a population now or, or a culture where the cost of living is going up and up and up and up which means that most families are are two-income households where the parents are working full-time which, you know, is, is it possible? I mean, is it just possible from a practical standpoint for two working parents to give that kid the level of engagement and guidance that would really support the the optimal educational experience these days?
0: I think it's hard. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I I think that as much as we often talk about quality time. Um, There's kind of no substitute for quantity time. Um, And, you know, one of the best predictors of kids' mental health is the level of involvement that their parents have in their lives. And, you know, I, I think that what working parents need to do is to make sure that when they're not working, they're not working. And you know, I mean, I think that these these visions and who knows, we don't have good data on this, but the the, the stereotypes that we see on television of families having dinner but not talking to each other because they're all on their smartphones, um, that can't be good for kids. Uh, so I think that, uh, to, you know, to me, one one of the one of the real culprits here um, is not so much that. Both parents might be working or in single-parent households that the single parent is working. It's that work infiltrates our whole lives now.
1: Yeah, And we're now so digitally connected that the assumption is that you'll just always be there.
0: Right. I saw something really interesting uh, in, in the newspaper last week or the week before about some large German companies that were actually forbidding their employees to receive work email um, in the evenings and on um, weekends. And I, I don't know whether we need to go that far, um, but it certainly would be a good idea to shut it off when, when, when you're home so that you can really interact in a meaningful way with your child. Uh, the other lesson I think here is that schools probably should be devoting some of their daily activities to time that's going to help build these non-academic skills. Experts are calling them non-cognitive skills. I'm not crazy about that term, um, but let's call them non-academic skills for for now. Um, So what what can schools be doing that help teach compassion, that teach collaboration? Because, you know, you and I know out in the world of work now, it's not how well you can work alone. It's how well you can work with other people. Um, What can schools do to help build grit and perseverance and determination? Yeah. So, which is,
1: I mean, a topic that is actually really fascinating. Um, I had a chance to um, just talk with Angela Duckworth, you know, who's the leading researcher who's exploring grit. And it's clearly, you know, a, a metric, which is determinative of success in a number of different areas. But at the same time, when I asked her, well, if you don't have it, can you teach it? Is it acquirable? And she said, don't know. Um, she said, basically that's the next level of research, but it's not done yet. But then, but then I would turn to the research of Carol Dweck and the growth versus fixed mindset and say, maybe they're using different language. Um, but, but fundamentally you're, you're sort of giving a kid a lens on struggle or challenge that allows them to either process it as "I've, I've hit the end of my capability. So why bother, or no, all success is a matter of like figuring out how to move through this, and this is just giving me more data.
0: Yeah, well, Angela Duckworth is a very good friend of mine, and we actually collaborate and write together um, as well. And Carol Dweck is a good friend too. Um, and I think that we probably can build grit. Um, Angela and I have talked a lot about what it would take to do. And I know she's doing a number of experiments to to try to to do that. Um, You know, we do know that some of the components of grit, like self-control, are malleable. And we have a pretty good sense of what parents do to to instill those capabilities in their kids. Um, There's some really exciting work being done on mindfulness. Mm,
1: yeah, amazing work on,
0: there. on mindfulness and self regulation. Uh, I've even come across studies showing that things like yoga uh, seem to affect the brain in ways that improve the, the, the components of, of things like grit. Um, but, you know, we don't do that stuff in school. I, I think one of the really terrible shortcomings of what's happened to our schools is the removal of physical education from the school. I couldn't agree with you more. You know, I don't know a single well-educated adult who doesn't have some sort of regimen for exercise daily, or at least aspires to it. So we all know how important physical well-being is for our mental health and and our well being, you know, not just to keep weight off uh, and and not just to be strong, but aerobic exercise is really good for your brain.
1: Yeah. I mean even if all you care if you don't care about the emotion, even if you're even if all you care about is performance, you know, we now know that that, you know, (laughs) it's like John Rady says, you know, it's like exercise is miracle grow for the brain. And and maybe it looks like it's BDNF, which is one of the pathways that helps this, but it is amazing to me how, how so many schools can be and academic institutions to become so obsessed with with grades, yet they strip away one of the activities that is so clearly, you know, a contributing factor to
0: excellence. It is just um, it is just amazing. I mean, if you if you were to go to school personnel and say, okay, here's one activity that's really going to improve your students' performance, and it's letting them run around for an hour you know, or day, or play basketball, or volleyball, or, you know, whatever, it doesn't really matter. They say, we don't have time for it. How can you not have time? How can you not have time for it? That is going to contribute much more to kids' math achievement and verbal achievement than another 45 minutes of math instruction is is going to do.
1: Right. Let alone, if you want, also, you know, may, how do you make classroom management easier? Yeah, you know, like the effects that it's going to have on kids' moods and just their, their outlook and their, you know, social
0: approach. Right. <laughs> but, I mean, if, if we as educated adults recognize this, why aren't we giving this opportunity to our kids? It, it, it really doesn't make any sense at all. One of the things that we could re- replace, at least in part in school, um, is classroom-based health education, which doesn't do very much at all. I, I think it's important that kids understand, you know, certainly sex and drugs and different kinds of risky behavior and the dangers of that. Um, but we spend an awful lot of time, awful lot of hours teaching those things. And the evaluations of those programs show that they they have an effect on what kids know, but they don't have much of an effect on how kids behave. And if we were to spend time focusing instead or combining some of that with activities that are going to help build self-regulation. We're probably going to make more progress in reducing rates of drug and alcohol use and unsafe sex in kids.
1: So you, we've kind of danced around also one word, which we not kind of laid out there, but let's go there now, which is, which is, I guess, risk or risky behavior in adolescence. You have an interesting lens on this also and how adolescence affects, um, you, you know, we talked a little bit about self-regulation, but not a lot, but self-regulation and, and risky behaviors and how it changes in that window compared to after. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. Our guest today is one of the world's leading authorities on the adolescent brain, Professor Lawrence Steinberg we 're talking about how breaking research is changing nearly everything we assume to be true about adolescence and how to turn it from a period of deep pain into one of grace and connection and maybe even joy
0: so at puberty, the brain is bathed in sex hormones and one of the things that we know now uh, is that sex hormones affect the way the brain develops they don't just affect our sex drive and the way our bodies look um, or the way our reproductive systems function. One of the interesting effect of effects of puberty on the brain is to intensify our experience of pleasure um and and Puberty does this by increasing brain activity involving the neurotransmitter dopamine. Dopamine serves many functions, but one of its most important ones um, is in the experience of pleasure, the experience of reward. Um, And there's more dopamine activity in the brain's reward centers during adolescence than in any other point in development.
1: I'm curious, is, is there any data on whether it's gender specific also? It
0: is more... It's not gender-specific, but it's more linked to testosterone than to estrogen. And so the effect that has been seen in animals, at least, is, is stronger for males. But remember that both both male hormones and female hormones increase at adolescence just in different amounts. Um, so when you have this this increase in, in dopaminergic activity, an in activity involving the neurotransmitter transmitter dopamine, Um, it intensifies the experience of pleasure to a degree that makes good things feel even better. I came across one really interesting study. I can't remember the methodology, but the conclusion was that sweet things tasted sweeter to adolescents than they do to people of other ages. Um, Now, just imagine that your brain is very sensitive to reward and finds rewarding things even more rewarding. You're therefore going to be on the lookout for where the different sources of reward and pleasure are. And you may be so focused on that that you may pay less attention to any attendant risks or dangers that are there associated with pursuing that activity that you think is going to be rewarding. Um, you know, driving fast, having unprotected sex, trying some drug you've never tried before. All these things have upsides and downsides, Um But if you're focused more on the upside, you're going to be more likely to engage in the behavior. And and while this is happening to the brain's reward centers, the backdrop for this is that the parts of the brain that govern self-control are still immature. They're still developing. In fact, they continue to develop through adolescence and into the 20s. Um, So the, the metaphor that a lot of us have used for this is you know, starting the engines without a good braking system in in place. Um, and that leads kids to take a lot of risks. So if you look at, at, at epidemiological data on different kinds of risky behavior, um, a remarkable array of very varied behaviors follow very similar age, age curves. So crime... Is the sort of classic example, which increases steadily from age 10. It peaks at around age 17 or 18, and then it, it declines. So it's this upside down you. Um, but if you look at things like um, self-inflicted injury, cutting, for example, upside down you, with a peak around 15 or 16 years old. If you look at accidental drownings, upside down you with a peak around 16 years old. That is striking to me because adolescents typically are pretty strong. They have a lot of stamina. There's no reason to think that they would drown more than people of other ages, other than the fact that they exercise poor judgment about when and where to swim. I could go on. You know, the list is quite long. So, because of this combination of, you know, a, an ignited engine and a and a still developing braking system, um, you, you see that adolescence is the time when risky and reckless behavior peaks. Um, now, that leads us then to, you know, to wonder, well, what can we, you know, is there anything we can right, do yeah. about it's it? It's like, right?
1: okay, so we know it, but... Right.
0: So, before I get to that, let me just point out that that mortality rates uh, double or even triple between childhood and adolescence, despite the fact that we've made tremendous advances in preventing and treating disease and illness during adolescence. So the major things that kill kids are not disease and illness, at least in the developed world. You know, they're things that kids do to themselves and and to each other. Um, So the way that we typically approach this uh, is... um, through through information-based health education. So the premise here is that if we tell you what's risky and we tell you not to do it and we explain why you shouldn't do it, then you won't do it. Um, Well, it doesn't work. because if your
1: brain is just not wired to...
0: (laughs) That's right. Um, I mean, so, so the reason that kids engage in risky behavior isn't that they're uninformed. I mean, studies that ask people about risky behaviors don't find any age differences in the extent to which people know that these things are risky. Um, it's because of this imbalance between this easily aroused, you know, reward-seeking system and this still maturing breaking system, this still maturing self-control system. So what I've advocated uh, is, is that we, instead of thinking about preventing adolescent risk-taking by trying to change adolescence, and I think change them into something that they're never going to become. Um, as, I, as I write, it's an uphill battle against endocrinology and evolution, and we're going to mm-hmm. lose it. You're going
1: to lose, right? There's no
0: way there. There's no way around <laughs> it. But what if we change the context in which kids spend time? So some examples of that. The most successful intervention ever to drive down teen smoking didn't involve anti-tobacco education. It involved raising the price of cigarettes. The, the, the provision of good, structured, supervised after-school activities for teenagers does more to reduce experimentation with drugs and alcohol than any drug or alcohol education ever does. The introduction of graduated driver licensing, um, which does things like prohibit new adolescent drivers from driving with other adolescent passengers in the car until they've reached a certain age, Um, Has done more to reduce teen auto fatalities than any amount of driver education ever did. So that's what I mean by thinking about how can we create a world for our kids to grow up in that's going to allow them to take healthy risks because we don't want them to be afraid to do that, but that's going to protect them against taking harmful ones.
1: Yeah, um, I'm just thinking all these things now, (laughs) like the world that you know I'm raising a kid in, and. uh, it is, you know, it's all, we, we, and again, like it goes back to what's happening in society. You know, like where programs like these existed, increasingly they're all being shut down. You know, and part of it's a lot of it's a funding issue, but, you know, but funding is also a priority issue. It's, uh, you know, like this is where people want their money to go issues. So, um, which is why I think this conversation and the information that you're sharing is just so important because it's, it gives you the argument to push back and say, you know, this is why this matters. Um, and and it's, it's really, and, there, and there's, that there's data around it now also. So you can. It's not like I'm just saying, well, I think. It's like, no, look.
0: They've made some progress in some areas, and, we, you know, we haven't made progress in others. But if you look at, at, at international comparisons, um, let's set aside the achievement issue. Um, American adolescents have the highest rate in the world of obesity, They have the highest rate of STDs, the highest rate of unintended pregnancies, I believe the highest rate of binge drinking, pretty sure the highest or nearly the highest rate in illicit drug use, easily the highest rate of violence. So, I mean, we must be doing something wrong, right? I mean, it just seems to me that we can do a better job so, so when, but when you look at that, right, and then
1: you look at the five countries where they have the best metrics and all of those things, and you kind of like, you know, like you do the cross analysis and the pattern recognition um, to say, well, okay, you know, like, what are the, you know, maybe we can't show causation, but you're know, like, what are the correlations where we see like they're doing this, this, and this? Are the differences that exist in those um, countries the ones that we're talking about here?
0: I think that probably the common thing that exists across those countries is that they tend to have more demanding schools for Um One thing that I find interesting and perplexing, and i 've not been able to get a good answer about this. I wonder what you think is in the international competitions, our elementary school kids are typically at the top of the list, and our middle school kids are kind of in the center of the distribution, and our high school kids are at the bottom of the list so it's 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 not that we have a terrible education system in this country it 's that there 's something the matter with the way we educate adolescence
1: you know okay so here's my you asked me yeah yeah (laughs) um completely no data just completely anecdotal but um when we there's like a rite of passage in new york city where there are great elementary schools in new york city public elementary schools where my daughter went there are very few um middle schools in New York City that parents tend to feel comfortable um sending their kids to so when yeah you know, that that very often is the point where a family if if you have the means or you know whatever it is to you know you start to go out and you interview at different private schools so we kind of did the rounds there and I remember being at one where it was just middle school they had no high school and they said the reason is because and and we said well you know do you ever plan on building a high school onto it because they thought it was just a logical next thing. And, and their answer was no. And they said, you know, basically if you look at the landscape of middle schools in New York City, it's, it's without using the word, said, kind of a wasteland. It's basically the, the philosophy underlying is, <laughs> let's just, it's survival. It's not even survival. It's like a notch below survival. Let's, you know, let's just whatever we have to do, it's going to be awful. You know, for the teachers, we expect all the teachers, you know, like a massive turnover rate every year in our middle school teachers, teachers come out of school and they're just, they're serving their time in middle school until they can go out and get like a decent job. And they said, we see it as this is the most profound opportunity for impact that we can have. So we want to exalt middle school you know and really double down on that but but i do think that across the board middle school is a place where it seems like the system is kind of giving up in this country where elementary school has a lot of expectations and and you know there but there is this i it feels to me at least that there is this thing that just says let's just get them to high school let's just get them to 11th grade whatever it is because we can't do anything with them let's just like try and keep them safe and, and, you know, have as few fights as we can have rather than, you know, rising to the challenge of saying like, yeah, it's angsty, it's emotional, there's massive change. And all of a sudden, you know, you go to school one day and you don't care, you know, like what other people think of you and the next day, that's all you care about. But that doesn't mean at the same time, you can't expect a lot from your kid and that they don't yearn for that, you know.
0: But, but look at, but as a point of comparison that your daughter's experience now yeah. in a in a really good middle right. school. Um so it's possible. Oh, totally possible. I mean it's totally possible. Yeah. Uh but you know it's not going to happen if we approach it as let's just get through this. Um so we need to we need really to change the way that we think about it. And and frankly high schools even worse. Um high schools even worse. The the the, the reason that we might not think that is that you know, that's an age when a lot of parents are really taking their kids out and putting them in select schools. And so they think, well, my kid's high school education is fine. But if you look at the sort of the, the, the vast education system that we have in the United States, our high schools are not good um, at all. I, I mean, they're really not good compared to schools in other countries. But again, I, I think it's it's this it's this notion that school that that development's kind of a done deal by the time people are a certain age and there's nothing we can do and you know if you give me a kid who's been well raised and educated and prepared then yeah i mean i can i can make her have a good high school experience but the rest you know for, forget it and we're we're paying the price on college campuses um, m- more college freshmen in this country need remedial education than took an ap course in in high school um, and we have a very high college enrollment rate in the United States one of the, one of the highest in the world but we're tied for last in college completion with the highest college dropout rate in in the world wow yeah a third of all people that, that start college um, don't, get a, don't get a degree
1: is there any research on what's behind that
0: yeah um, it's a it's a combination of things um, it's financial strain Um, but, but the surveys say it is, uh, the, the inability to keep up with the demands of, of college, whether that's academic or, or I think even psychological demands, um, of, of the demands of having, uh, a schedule that you have to sort of keep yourself on. And this goes back to our earlier discussion about, the absence of, of school activities that help build things like perseverance and grit and determination. Are,
1: are there examples that you're aware of, um, of educational paths or institutions that are really doing it right in this country?
0: There are examples here and there. Um, I think KIPP is probably the, the best known, um, sort of collective of schools that's doing it right. Um, And and KIPP has made a lot of progress in boosting the academic achievement of kids from uh, disadvantaged backgrounds. Uh, They're still not where they want to be. I mean, I've talked to the people who run KIPP. They have a a higher college dropout rate than they feel comfortable having. Um, There are pockets of of excellence. Very often, uh, I, I think, the problem is that the excellence derives from the charisma and leadership of mm, an right. individual. Which
1: is not reproducible. And it's not
0: reproducible. Yeah. And that's that's part of the problem. And and you know, because we don't have a national curriculum, we don't have national standards, we give so much uh, a room to local Districts to do what they want to do, and I think you know and you have some very creative ones where they're doing great things, but you have a lot where they're not doing what they what they ought to be doing. I mean, you know, you've got teachers who are cheating, you know, to to make their kids' test scores look better, and this, these aren't isolated instances happening in lots of lots of cities around the United States. Um, you know, we don't want our kids in schools where that that stuff is going on.
1: One of the things you talk about also is um, the. How the how adolescence is shifting and also how that's leading to a sense of um of inequality income inequality take me through this
0: yeah um so adolescence is is being stretched at both ends it starts earlier because puberty is happening earlier and earlier um you know, the the average american girl got her first period at, in the, when she was 14 and a half at the beginning of the 20th century and it's 12 today so it's really fallen quite substantially, and there have been comparable declines for boys as well. Um, at the same time, the end of adolescence is being delayed, as um, individuals take more time moving into the conventional roles of adulthood. So, if you if you do the math, it looks like adolescence is about you know a 15 year period in Mm. development now.
1: About twice what we actually thought it was. Exactly.
0: (laughs) And 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 actually, you know, mathematically it's twice what it was in the nineteen fifties. And three times as long as it was in the nineteenth century. Um now I don't I'm not one of those persons who believes that it's taking longer to move into adulthood because people are lazier. Um, I don't think it's that at all. I think that it's a changed economy and a changed labor force and people need to stay in school longer, which makes them financially dependent on their parents longer and less able to earn income that will allow them to establish an independent residence and all that stuff. And people, you know, are postponing getting married and that leads them to postpone becoming parents. Um, But it's not because they're lazy at all. Uh, But in a world in which you need a college degree to get even a decent-paying job. Um, that means that you've got to be prepared to stay in school until at least the age of twenty-two, and probably more like twenty-four. The average four-year college degree now takes six years. Yeah, I recently heard that. Yeah. And I was kind of like, Wow. Right. <laughs> so, so who's able to stay in school that long? Um, well, it's people that have really strong self-control, really good delay of gratification. Um, Really good prefrontal cortical systems, um, really good supports and resources in, in their worlds. Um, and those are all things that are in shorter supply among people that come into life in poverty. Uh, and what's happening is that that kids who grow up in poor families are less likely, for all kinds of reasons, to develop the kinds of psychological strengths. That are needed to succeed in a world in which you've got to be able to stick it out in school for so many years. And it, it, I think that that is contributing to income inequality. Um, it, 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 you know, I write about a, a, a different kind of capital. You know, we've heard of human capital and social capital, and I talk about neurobiological capital. And that's, the, and that's the capital that you have to keep your brain developing in important ways. And I think that a, a lot of that capital comes along with um, economic advantage.
1: Hmm. I mean, it makes sense when it's just sort of like a logical linear argument really like
0: that. But, but, but the, I think the point is that in a world where you once could get a good job, if you dropped out of school when you were 16 or 17, or just graduated from high school. It wasn't so terrible to do that. But now, I read, I read recently that the advantage conferred by a couple of years of college in terms of earnings and labor force uh, success has pretty much disappeared. It used to be the case that people that got a couple of years of college or a community college degree, associate's degree, um, did better than people that just had a high school diploma. They're almost about equivalent now. So it's not just enough to go to college. you got to graduate from college, and that's where we're not doing a very good job.
1: Mm. Yeah, and you factor in six years and also just the cost of college becoming astonishingly high. Um,
0: Temple, where I teach, um, just started a program where they will guarantee that you will have the courses available to you that you need to graduate in four years. And, you you know, students can sign up for this. And I think in our new entering class, something like 85% of the students signed up hmm. for this program. I think it's called Fly in Four or something like that. Interesting. <laughs>
1: and in a way, I mean, you, ne- you never like to sort of attribute, you know, um, negative uh, motivation to it, but yeah, There is a motivation to keep kids, purely a financial motivation to keep kids longer because it's just more money. But in terms of actually, like, what you're trying to do and the core mission of, growing and getting kids out there and having great opportunities and contributing to society, you know, it does make sense to say, okay, let's, let's move people through and let's get more people who are actually leaving, who are coming.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm by nature, I can be a cynical person, but I've never heard anybody say that we want kids to not get the courses they need to graduate so we can get more money from them. I, I don't. Yeah. I can't,
1: I I would never imagine attributing that. yeah, (laughs) Yeah. Um, Such a fascinating conversation. Um, For purely selfish reasons, I'd like to keep it going for a long time, but I can't because we're sort of rounding on an hour now. Normally, I I wrap up every conversation by asking um, what it means to you to live a good life. And I'm going to ask you that. But also, I think this conversation will be relevant to so many parents. Um, So I want to offer up a precursor to that question, which is for, for those parents who are listening to this conversation. And they're... They want nothing more than for their child to have a good life. Um,
0: What should they be focusing on? What are the big rocks in that? I think they should be focusing on uh, parenting according to a style that I've described called authoritative parenting, which is parenting that combines warmth and and firmness. Um, One without the other doesn't work. Um, And so we don't want tiger moms that is not a good way to raise kids that's firm but not warm and we don't want overly indulgent or permissive parents that are warm but not firm we want that combination and that's been shown in in i mean thousands of studies to help facilitate the psychological traits that you and I've been talking about um in our conversation so that's that's the first thing um the second is We want to make sure that when our kids are going off to to middle school and to high school, that they're going to environments and taking advantage of environments in which they're going to be pushed and going to be challenged. So we want to move parents away from thinking about what kind of grades is my child going to get and instead of thinking about how can I help my child take advantage of this tremendous opportunity to, to really grow his brain by having him pushed and challenged a little bit beyond what he's capable of doing now. A, a third thing that parents can do is they can really help focus a little bit on their child's physical well-being. I mean, we have a huge sleep deprivation problem in this country among adolescents. We have a huge obesity epidemic among adolescents. Kids should be getting exercise if if it's up your alley as a parent, you know, meditation, yoga, these are really good things for kids to be doing. And I think if you did more of all these things that I've just listed, that it would really help your child develop into a, a healthier and happier and, and, you know, more successful mm. person.
1: Sitting across from you for an hour not knowing you beforehand, you're... It's clear, just by your body language and your presence, that you are doing something which you really believe in, and is meaningful and you love. And so if I offer the question now to you, what does it mean to you to live a good life?
0: I think to be engaged in something that you feel passionate about that has some broader benefit than just benefiting yourself, that's what gives me the most pleasure in my life. I'm really fortunate to have the career that I've had, not in terms of accomplishments, but in terms of opportunities to explore things. And I hope in some small way to make a difference, to improve the the lives of families and kids. That's what I set out to do when I decided to do this. And that's what I've been trying to do.
1: Mm, Wonderful. Thank you so much. Enjoy the conversation. Thank you
0: so (laughs) much. Thanks so
1: much for listening to Good Life Project. If you liked this episode, we'd be so grateful if you'd share a quick review over on iTunes. It helps us get the word out to more people and make a bigger difference in the world. And while you're there, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. I'm Jonathan Fields, signing off for Good Life Project.